Welcome to the Economic Rockstar Podcast with your host, Frank Conway. Connecting brilliant minds in economics and finance. Hello once again and thanks for joining me on the Economic Rockstar Podcast. I am delighted to have Dr. Lotta Moberg join me today. Talking to Lotta felt so natural and I really enjoyed the conversation that I had with her. We actually spoke for about 10 minutes before we kicked off the interview and we we hung on for about 30 minutes afterwards and just chatting and it was actually great to have that relaxed conversation with her. She's a very down-to-earth person but highly committed to her work and she's doing so much in her field and her specialism on special economic zones. And after my conversation with Professor Tom W. Bell back in episode 148, he dropped me an email saying I should get in touch with Lotta Moberg to talk about the economic side of special economic zones because Tom W. Bell, if you've listened to the episode, is a lawyer. And I had a couple of economic questions that I wanted to put to him and I felt that there was so much more out there and it was great to get in touch with Lotta to touch on some of these economic questions that I had. And just a bio on... Dr. Moberg, she is a macroeconomic analyst for William Blair's Dynamic Allocation Strategies team, and she has a PhD in economics from George Mason University and earned her BA in economics from Lund University in Sweden. And prior to joining the Dynamic Allocation Strategies team with William Blair, she worked in Russia for the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs and in Kosovo for the Swedish Armed Forces. And she has published articles on special economic zones, tax benefits, tax competition and municipal bankruptcy. And Lotta has published her book, The Political Economy of Special Economic Zones, Concentrating Economic Development, which is available at all your favorite online stores. And you can check out that book on my website, economicrockstar.com forward slash Lotta Moberg, along with all their links and resources that Lotta has mentioned in this episode. And what's so great about this conversation with Lotta is that... Not only do we talk about her work on special economic zones and her book, but she highlights not only the successes of these zones, but also the failures, which is a great thing to hear. Because most of the time, what we when we read about our discipline in economics, we tend to read about the, the benefits or the successes of theories or some of the theories put into practice. And it's always good to look at those failures and perhaps learn from those failures so as to make improvements and if they don't work in one particular country, then uh, how can that country move forward if they want to create some of these zones so that they can trade with other countries? And unexpectedly, what I found during my conversation was that a lot is going to be speaking at a blockchain conference, which is actually happening this weekend, 25th of August 2018, in which she is going to be linking in how special economic zones can be used in countries that want to adopt blockchains and they're kind of building up an idea which is can definitely become a reality in which they can identify the opportunities that these zones can bring to blockchain and cryptos and how they can be used as a testing ground for a country that would like to adopt blockchain tech before committing to maybe a full-scale rollout or adoption and like a lot of these countries do fear perhaps the change and the threat that blockchain or more so cryptocurrencies have on their fiat currency and maybe taken away from their sovereignty but why not adopt this new technology create a special economic zone and let this be kind of like a testing ground to see will this blockchain and crypto actually work and if so and if it's success and maybe they want to keep it within that particular area well then why not have that within that host country so that you can trade with other countries and how that blockchain will allow things to happen. Lotta is also doing amazing work for refugees and through her work at refugeecities.org which is devoted to the economic empowerment of refugee camp residents and and this type of entrepreneurial thinking mindset that Lotta has has actually escalated to a point in which she has seen opportunities that refugee camps that we are so familiar with and reading and hearing about on the news and watching it happening, especially in, say, the likes of North Africa and even in Europe and in North America. These refugee camps are, are becoming somewhat permanent places for the residents. And even Lotta has identified a case in which you have third-generation families residing in these camps. And with, with this type of thinking and connecting the special economic zones with trying to help out with these refugee camps 
Lotta, along with others, has created RefugeeCities.org, which is devoted to the economic empowerment of refugee camp residents. And she discusses how refugee camps could obtain special economic zone type status and give those living there the opportunity to establish an economy that will allow trade with the host country and others. And I think this would be a, is a fantastic idea and I, you'd obviously love to see it happening because these residents are somewhat isolated from the rest of the world and they're restricted in terms of their movement and how they can contribute to the economy, not only their own local economy, but also the economy outside uh, within the host country itself. So with these opportunities, it would generate employment. People will be given their dignity back. They'd have their pride. And it'll also create business opportunities for those who are entrepreneurially minded. And if this is a type of episode that interests you, let me recommend episode 148 with Tom W. Bell on Special Economic Zones, Copyright and Liberland. And if the blockchain side of it again interests you, I have an episode 137 with Rakesh Ramachandran on crypto economies, as well as episode 9, going back to maybe almost four years ago with Naomi Brockwell on Bitcoins, Liberty, Government and Fiat Currency. And not only that, but Lotta shares with us some writing tips, some book recommendations and who she would like to meet if time travel was possible. So if you want to check out all the links, resources and books mentioned in this episode with Lotta, check out economicrockstar.com forward slash Lotta Moberg. That's L-O-T-T-A-M-O-B-E-R-G. And again, if you'd like to support the show, please check out Apple Podcasts if that's where you download the episodes and leave an honest rating or review, even subscribe to it. If you're listening on Spotify, check it out. And these episodes are easily shareable on Spotify. And just click on the, the top three dots of the episode link and you have an option to copy the link, email it, share it on social media platforms. And I'd love if you could uh, do that if this is an episode that you like or that you know someone would appreciate and like to listen to. Again, if you want to financially support the show, check out patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar where you can support the show for as little as $1 per month. But just one more thing to say to you that very early on in the conversation, the audio quality slightly dropped due to a technical fault and I let the conversation run. So hopefully this won't affect your listening and appreciation of the show. So again, thanks for listening. Enjoy this episode with Dr. Lotta Moberg and enjoy. One of these things where I know in academia, I like kind of the cross-fertilization between different fields. And here I am as an economist in my spare time, getting to meet these really smart people who think about the future and sit and talk about what the world can look like in the future. So definitely that's where I come into this and, and then when they're putting up this conference. Lasse, welcome to the Economic Rockstar podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm very honored to have you on. A previous guest that I've had, Tom W. Bell, got in touch with me. He said, I had to go and talk to you. And he obviously is a, if anyone's listened to the podcast recently, Tom W. Bell is a lawyer and he spoke about special economic zones. And I had a lot of economic type questions, but we couldn't really get down that avenue. And when he referred me to you and I saw what you actually do and that you have a book out, I said, definitely, you are the person that I need to go down and um, make contact with and talk to about your this type of work. And firstly, what I'd love to ask is, how did you get into economics and then niche down to special economic zones? I got into economics from undergrad. I tried out, uh, basically tried out political science. I thought I could be a political scientist and I uh, realized that it wasn't my thing. And then I tried out economics and it was, it was just a love at first kind of <laughs> encounter. Uh, and then, um, and I was actually um, at the age I feel like I could actually understand what I wanted and I, what I felt was actually valuable in life in the sense that I had taken a few years after high school. I was 23 when I started undergrad, which is basically unheard of in the United States, I've learned after moving here. Uh, and then I continued after undergrad. I continued on uh, with economics in grad school uh, and got my PhD from George Mason University. 
Wow. Um, we've had a, quite a few guests from George Mason. I don't know what they're doing there, sure. but they're uh, making they're doing a lot of great work and very interesting work. Doesn't seem to be as mainstream, and a lot of undergrads wouldn't necessarily have that exposure. But when I started to do this podcast and I was trying to look down different interesting interesting topics, I went down that rabbit hole and I found George Mason. <laughs> You know, to say a couple of words about George Mason is this place where if you are creative and you want yeah. to do things and you're hardworking, you can do you can just really establish a very interesting career that can make you happy. Yes. <laughs> and, and, and and I would say, I mean, when I was finishing my undergrad in Sweden and I was telling some of my professors that I was intending to go there, they you know, they were a bit worried, I think, because uh, it, it, people know it as a, as a not the usual school. And if you get into a school that is more kind of mainstream, it's it's um, most people who are interested in higher economists have easier time reading you in the sense of like, this is where you're coming from. George Mason is more about your work and uh, what kind of know what kind of uh, output you've had and it's definitely a place where you can work with professors and things like that and they'll be happy to work with you when you if you show that you're you're um, um, willing to do the job and 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 you have good ideas if there was one place i would go to if i was starting an economics degree now it would be george mason because as you said there you nailed it they're very creative extremely creative and there, there's no there doesn't seem to be any limits or boundaries and you have that i'm sure you have maybe it's if you're tenured or maybe not, but you have that freedom and that liberty to actually go about and just do the work that actually interests you and has a resonates, it resonates around there and beyond. And it's, um, there's great, great pieces of work and books done there as well. And was it there that you came across firstly your research area, especially economic zones, or was it something else that, um, led you down that particular path? Yeah, it, it was. Uh, I was interested in uh, development economics and uh, uh, took a class in development economics. And there's a lot of learning about uh, what, especially what does not work in terms of foreign aid and what the problems are with that and things like that. And I was just starting to think about what is actually a good development policy. I started I started hearing about uh, Paul Romer and charter cities, and I thought I might write my dissertation on charter cities. And as soon as you start digging into that, you get into the special economic zones. And I realized that this was a, a policy that a lot of people were referencing, having a lot of opinions about, but uh, really were not really well understood. So there was some work on it, but it was very macro focused in the sense of like looking at you can increase export by having special economic zones. And my big question was, is it good? Is it a, is a policy that actually works in terms of increasing growth and, and development in the country? So that's what I set out to understand. And was this something that is is relatively new? Because I, I know from talking to Tom W. Bell that it's been around for, oh, it could, I don't know if I'm wrong, but one of the first ones may have been in the late 19th century, but they tend to have died off in the 60s and 70s and there's a resurgence again. But is this resurgence due to maybe the trade and tariffs or maybe the difficulties that cross-border difficulties that some countries would have to protect their economy and yet they want to trade with other countries that they may not necessarily have a trade agreement with? I think that the, the story is very much that you did have pretty early on, you had some kind of rudimentary forms of zones. And then you have basically in the, in the 1959 is actually Ireland where you have what, what at Shannon airport, what a lot of people refer to as the first modern special economic zones. There are disputes about this. Was it actually something else? And, and, um, but at, at least around there is when you can say you have these zones that are what we would call more like industrial parks that so you can actually have like a cluster of industry within a confined area usually it's not a residential area and that's very much the model that has been uh, popular and been sustained throughout you still see that those kind of zones being implemented the big big kind of boost of special economic zones i would say came after china made their example of what special economic zones can actually do with the country i think china is a very special story i think a lot of 
countries try to implement it uh, by taking the completely the wrong lessons. And that gets to back to my thesis about that we actually need to understand these um, uh, zones in the right way, so to speak. Uh, but I, but since then, zones, the zone concept has been popular. Uh, where people are then looking into is um, uh, how to modernize the zones in the sense that a lot of countries have uh, are kind of labor rich and capital poor, introduced zones uh, that shall attract manufacturers. A lot of it is textiles. Um, and that has been very much the driving force between zones. And now what you're seeing is these kind of more innovative zones that are looking at more at rules. There are more countries trying to do what China did and have really large zones that are whole cities. Uh, so the whole kind of new cities aspect of it um, is something that we're seeing that is still special economic zones, but much more interesting in many ways. And, and uh, I think a lot of good can come out of that development. I'm just wondering, is China a really good example of this because of their type of political economy that they have? Because, you know, being a communist state or a capitalist slash communist state, to encourage entrepreneurial activity and trade with other countries, was it a good thing to create these special economic zones so it doesn't go against the, the ruling communist party's principles? so that they could have that capitalistic and entrepreneurial outlook and create these cities or special economic zones to do that trade for them and help generate large economic growth? My general big argument is that if we want to understand special economic zones, we really want to see them from the political economy lens uh, rather than the kind of macroeconomic aggregate uh, data lens. And I think that China is actually... Uh, it may not be example for how anyone can get rich on special economic zones. I would not, not say that. I would say it's a very special example that might never be again um, uh, repeated. But why special economic zones were um, successful in China is because very much because of the environment that you're describing. You have this ruling elite of the Communist Party. They don't want change. They are catering to their interest group. They are conservative in the sense that they're afraid of change that may jeopardize their uh, political position. The story that people often tell is that Deng Xiaoping came in, he saw that China could grow and he introduced special economic zones and he's the hero. That's not really what happened. What really happened was that you had a group of business people uh, based around the Shenzhen area they wanted to do business in Hong Kong, and they managed to lobby the right policymakers to say, can we have an exemption here? Let us give us a, a special economic zone here. Not that the word would have existed at the time, but give us a special area here uh, so that we can do this trade. And it was small enough, it was far enough from Beijing that somehow they could get through with this and say, okay, it's all, okay, we can, we can do this. And then you had these five initial zones that were still kind of, they were spread out along the coast, far, far away from the capital city. And it was really a bottom-up process in that way. That is, rather than being a big government, central government kind of project, it was a bottom-up project where despite the reluctance to reform, you could get reform from below through the special economic zones. The special economic zones served as a tool, really, for uh, those seeking to benefit from economic liberalization. And I'd say that's one of the fundamental reasons why they're so successful is because they weren't led by government. They were more led by business people who had that entrepreneurial spark and wanted to generate profits. And if you'd wonder, giving the... It is a cliche that if governments get, get involved in business activity, they don't tend to fail because we have these... Public, ser public services that could end up making losses but are propped up by, say, tax revenue generated by the citizens. So by having the business people lead this special economic zone, they were successful in those areas. And I'd love to know how comparable that is to other countries like um, maybe Honduras or 
even even in Ireland that Shannon was success because I'm sure that was led by the government. Yeah, it's it's certainly the case that you did have a lot of government involvement uh, at least after a while in in the Chinese zones. Uh, they were not these kind of zones that um, have lately become very popular, where you really have a good structure of uh, private development and a hundred percent kind of private initiative. Um, but why China was so successful, I would say, is that they de- it de- they de- they have developed the country in a way that would not have been possible without them. Very unlikely. Like mm. so, the question is, what would, was the political alternative here? It's not a matter of um, how could China have done this in a more perfect way. They probably wouldn't have just liberalized the whole country. The this kind of geographical concentration of liberalization actually worked from the political kind of dynamic standpoint. And that's why I think they're so successful. Um, and I would say success has to do with, did it improve the country as a whole? Yes. Not did resources go to the zone? Because you have a lot of zones that people will say are successful because you have investment there. But it can be, yes, yeah, it can be government investment. It can be private investment, but it's because the government is, is, is incentivizing it to such an extent that they're losing so much money that's actually just a reallocation of resources uh, where business people get get really profitable. Um, so I think that's the that's the right way of thinking about it also when we think about success. Did China go forward thanks to the zone? And I would say yes. And it was not a matter of, well, it was unnecessary to do the zones. They could have just liberalized the country as a whole because that was not a political alternative. Like that's a question. One of one of the questions I um, asked Tom W. Bell was, how comparable is a special economic zone to the region just outside that zone, and would there be low levels of crime, lower levels of unemployment if there's residential area mixed in with the commercial or the industrial? And I suppose with China, it became quite urbanized to the special economic zones because you had a migration from the rural China to the urban area where these zones are based. And I'm sure there are inequalities there, mainly due to the differences in industry. Would it typically, if, because there are zones, I'm sure there are zones or cities whereby people reside now. Would they, would you have been able to answer those questions or did you seek those questions to find out about these typical macro statistics regarding employment and crime? And obviously GDP levels in those zones would be a lot higher, I'm sure. In many cases, I have found it not very interesting just because zones tend to be uh, the better better environment yeah. and uh, so i can answer the question absolutely it's so much better in zones it doesn't mean that zones are a good idea but i can tell you employment is higher productivity is higher uh production will be higher for two reasons one is you set up a zone that is meant to where where, where the rules are here we welcome um manufacturer we welcome industry um, this is what the zone is for. Well, for definition, it's either going to be empty, in which case it's not a zone, or you're going to get people setting things up there that it tends to be a bit larger economies of scale than the rest of the country in many in many cases and things like that. Um, people go into these zones or live in the zones in the case when it's when they're really big uh, to work to benefit from this. So employment will be higher and very often what zones are is that they come with fiscal benefits, right? So you could think of it as two different kinds of benefits. It's the fiscal and more regulatory benefits. And the standard model is an emphasis, has an emphasis on the fiscal benefits. That is tax exemptions and, and tariff exemptions usually. So you're, if you're a producer, you import a lot of your material and you can do that, say, without tariff or very low tariffs. And, um, and economists will tell you that if you lower taxes, if you, you say you are tax exempt, you're going to have higher production. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's you know that it's uh, it's good for uh, for that area, but it probably is right. But it it doesn't necessarily mean that it's good for the country as a whole if it means that companies simply relocate where they can have a lower tax rate. Uh, Lotta, so you travel from Sweden. To do your was it your undergrad at George Mason or your postgrad? 
I did my PhD at George Mason. I have undergrad from Sweden, from Lund University. Yeah. Okay. Um. Sure. I suppose. How How did that go in Sweden? You know, the the educational standards, or not the standards, but the, um, like, is it? It is true that you kind of start late in terms of your approach to schooling, and you're encouraged to, to be more creative and be more imaginative, and as opposed to say in Ireland at four years of age, you're in a classroom setting. Is that true? To some extent, I mean, you'll be taking classes all the time in Sweden. Uh, there is a culture of taking a break after after high school. I would say, on average, maybe Swedes do take one year, travel, work. You know, don't have to uh, rush into college. I mean, I certainly not unheard of in the United States as well. Um, I actually did uh, my military service, and I worked for the foreign ministry in in Russia for a year. And then I went and worked for the military for the NATO forces in Kosovo. So that's what I did for three years. And then I was already a year late because I had been in Australia as an exchange student for a year when I was 17. And I couldn't count those classes. So that's how I ended up kind of being four years older than I would have had if I I just kind of gone the regular route and, and gone schooling throughout. How did the military go and how was Kosovo? (laughs) <laughs> that would be another podcast. Uh, what a job. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, it's, it's, it was the best challenge I could ever pose to myself in that age. Yeah. You know, you want a, a good challenge. I didn't, I felt like I need to grow a little bit before I know what I want to study. Mm-hmm. And I do not just want to kind of travel around or just kind of work at a local grocery store. And so, um, yeah, the military was the best thing. I had a friend who was um, into intelligence. And he knew that there were some interesting things where you could like, where you can study Russian. So I did that, uh, study Russian in the military. And that's why I could also then go to Russia and, and work for the foreign ministry, which was, of course, a civilian job. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was uh, the toughest time of my life, definitely. Well, did you have to do any peace control or anything like that or in Kosovo? Or was there more intelligence that you were doing? Yeah, I was doing intelligence work, yeah, primarily. Okay. So, and then you go to George Mason, do your PhD, you concentrate on special economic zones, and then you publish a book on your work. And the the book is available called The Political Economy of Special Economic Zones, Concentrating Economic Development. And again, it's just a culmination of your work that you've done in your PhD. And you decided to put it out there as a publication. Yeah, two thirds of the book, I would say, is very much directly related to my PhD work. When you try to be an academic, you write pages, papers of around uh, 20 pages and uh, geared towards the academic kind of audience. And I found a lot of interest just in the topic. And I thought I could try to reach a broader audience. So you rewrite everything, you know, when you publish papers, you know, you can't just copy what is copyrighted so you rewrite it new words take out anything that is smacks of equations and things like that uh, and when you when you have to put things down in words you know that's really a, when you have to think about your argument and make them 100% solid um, so I did that after just after um, graduating actually because I thought I could this is actually something that could interest people and and I still get requests of, of speaking at conferences on special economic zones and things like that. There's certainly interest there and having a lot to do with with um, with the new kind of cities and smart cities and things like that that are coming along. So yeah. And you mentioned that the, before we spoke um, before we started recording the episode that you're going to be speaking at a conference about blockchain. And is this what you mean by smart cities and how? these new zones could use blockchain technology or are you just talking about the technology you're talking about the cryptos no it's exactly it's, it's, you're you're exactly right i that's the angle i'm going to do a panel and uh, uh, together with um a couple of people one who's doing a lot of blockchain work generally and then uh one who is very engaged with a neom which is this new city in saudi arabia that they're building and there's going to be a lot of private capital involved with that. So uh, one of the guys, an investor there, and also engaged in other ways. So um, definitely uh, thinking about here's this cool technology where people are saying there are all these solutions out there, but there's a lot of 
skepticism, rightfully so. There will be a lot of risk taking you have to do. How can you actually how can you actually do that with the kind of solutions that people come out that is blockchain based? And because people will say, well, you can't just implement this in the country. But what if you could have a special economic zones where you can actually try this out? Large enough so you can do it on a society-wide basis. I mean, people are talking about the property rights and their communications and their other. I mean, anything having to do with commerce, try it out in an area. Learn how it works, what works, what doesn't. Show that it actually can work. So, absolutely, how special jurisdictions can be the gateway for blockchain technology is what we're going to be talking about. Was this something that when blockchain came up first or when cryptos came up first that you could see the connection between that and special economic zones or was there a problem because we know there are problems with government where they're trying to ban cryptos and you know austria decided to allow them a number of years ago and then other countries might decide to close down or try to close down even facebook trying to close down any posts about uh, cryptocurrencies or bitcoin so was this something that a problem emerged that you could see a solution through these special economic zones or were you approached about this and asked, could you offer your expertise regarding how this could work and convince a country to try out blockchain technology using these zones? I mean, I'm engaged uh, with the, the blockchain project here in Chicago. Is there's a, there's a really active group here who are doing a lot of creative Fun stuff, and then the conference here in Chicago is is, um, is uh, coming weekend on August twenty uh, fourth, and um, I come into that group as the economist, and there are a lot of people who are really creative and who have the the hack, the the programming skills and all that. I don't have the programming skills, but I can give my view, and I find it that people find it very useful, and I end up engaging in really interesting conversations. And we come up with solutions together. So this is one of these things where I you know in academia, I like kind of the cross-fertilization between, between different fields. And here I am as an economist in my spare time getting to meet these really smart people who think about the future and sit and talk about what the world can look like in the future. So definitely that's where I come into this. And, and then when they're putting up this conference, you know, they won't want me there to speak. But um, uh, it, you, you were talking about the, the government and regulations. There could certainly be a limit in the sense of uh, think about special economic zones. It's a top-down policy in the sense that the government has to say yes, it's okay to have a special economic zone there. And if they want to ban crypto, they're probably going to say it's banned in the country as a whole. So um, they, that really gets to the larger conversations of can the government, can a government really go against technology, right? Can you be a Luddite as a government and prevent a technology that can enhance people's lives in the future? Or is that in the long end doomed to failure in the sense that one government is going to say, actually, if we can enrich our, our population by adopting some of these technologies, let's just go for it. And then you'll have this kind of jurisdictional competition, or competition between governments and other governments are going to say, actually, this seems to be what we have to do. Otherwise, we're, we're going to fall behind because um, they have their prestige on the line. So I think I, I believe in that dynamism. I don't think we should expect it to be a quick process. And in the meantime, I think that the kind of blockchain solutions that we're going to see in special economic zones are more these kind of not breaking the rules kind of blockchain solutions, but but rather more the technical solutions of how we can do how we can deal with um, common property and how do we do with trades and how can we just make society you know, work more smoothly and more efficiently. And I'm sure, like I, I could imagine that if these zones were actually set up for blockchain, that the only currency that would be going around would be cryptocurrencies and not fiat currencies. Or was that discussed at all? Because if you're going to be trading with other countries through the special economic zone using the blockchain, um, not only as a kind of a data security, but also for crypto or cryptocurrencies, that these other countries will have to be able to adopt the, the cryptos to be able to trade with these countries or with these zones? It is possible. Uh, one interesting discussion is certainly if you allow for 
currency competition. And if you would come to a place where people actually prefer cryptocurrencies and do not use and merge from using national currencies, cryptocurrencies, are you going to have more or or fewer currencies around? And um, I've always thought about it as more, but um, I've heard good arguments on the other side, and I could I could very well be wrong about that. And in that case, you could say maybe Sony is too small to have their own currency. Maybe they will prefer to first dollarize before any cryptocurrency actually becomes a dominant one that is also there, therefore efficient to use. Because it certainly is a network. You know, money is certainly a network kind of uh, a good. Um, where you want as many people as possible to be using it for you to adopt it. True, yeah. You know what's going on in Venezuela at the moment mm-hmm. with this hyperinflation? Like they're, they're suggesting that hyper or inflation could reach something like one million percent by the end of the year, and they've actually changed their currencies to knock something like five zeros off it. People may argue that cryptos could be the way forward if people had um, bought. Obviously, in hindsight, is 2020 that if they had cryptos, they would have been able to secure their assets. And I suppose, likewise, if they had bought the dollar or any other fiat currency or even gold, that could have um, prevented them from losing their wealth if they had that if that particular wealth to lose. But I don't know if there's any special economic zones in Venezuela. And if there are, how would they be affected? Or if there isn't, has there been any other case whereby a country has experienced hyperinflation, like maybe Germany in the in the 20s or 30s, and maybe Zimbabwe in the 90s or 80s, I think, have special economic zones been kind of shut down, closed, or people moved on, or were they able to thrive and succeed, or were they caught up in the, the actual whole economy that has been experiencing these difficulties? Venezuela is actually one country where I think they have never had a special economic zone, at least you know, the, the way that we would define it. Uh, one interesting parallel case might be Cuba, where they have had a special economic zone that actually shut down. And that was because it just didn't, it just didn't work um, uh, because you, you didn't get investors and most they have it now. Again, they started it, but it's primarily government investment. And part of it was because they didn't change some of the rules that are completely off the charts in terms of how you um, how you pay your workers and you basically make our workers there artificially expensive. Uh, Venezuela, uh, this is a good kind of a time anchor for anyone listening to this podcast. We are speaking today at the day where Venezuela did uh, take five zeros off their currency. And um, they're linking their currency to the Petro, which is this cryptocurrency that they're launching. And um, part of why cryptocurrency is is, um, is valuable is that you don't have to rely on a central bank and you can rely on, you know, it's an algorithm that says these are the rules. Everybody follows rules because everybody has incentive to follow the rules. If you have a cryptocurrency um, uh, controlled by the Venezuelan government, I do not know who would buy it. Um, and it's basically what they would probably use it for. It's similar to how they're uh, refinancing their loans now. It's a kind of an IOU saying we will pay you at some point. And here's just another way of showing you this piece of paper or, or this piece of other piece of paper. There's this Petra on it. Uh, basically, Venezuela, um, I think uh, uh, Steve Hankey of, of Hopkins um, recently that around 50,000 was his estimate of inflation there. And I do know that IMF has an, uh, a projection of uh, inflation. Not sure if it's this year or next with the, the number you cited, 1 million, which is an awesome number. Of course, mm-hmm. you haven't calculated and ended up with, with, with six euros. So, you know, it's a good, it's good estimate. Um, cryptocurrencies will not be the way out for the Venezuelan government. Nobody will want to trust the Venezuelan government with a cryptocurrency when they are sitting on the algorithm. Um, so, no, they need to dollarize. That was that would be the way to go for them. Um, and uh, it's a uh, you know it's another uh, long episode, but it's, it's one of the most tragic you know, tragic stories out there in the world right now. And of course, we're seeing it being. Uh, Countries around being affected with with more and more refugees uh, pouring out from Venezuela to uh, primarily Colombia and, and Brazil. 
Yeah. Like you just wonder how a situation like that can evolve over time and with the petrol currency that they had planned to do, you'd wonder has this been orchestrated in order to transfer the fiat or even peg the fiat currency to petrodollar? And if the government is going to be controlling the algorithm, is this something that is taking a dictatorship to the next level, whereby they may be able to, even though blockchain suggests that you will not be able to identify, you'll be able to mark all the transactions and you know where the transaction has gone, but you wouldn't be able to identify the individual, perhaps, I don't know, uh, who has made those transactions. Um, like, there are there are definitely a lot of foreign companies located in Venezuela, especially oil companies, and we saw under Hugo Chavez beforehand where he nationalized some of them. But I'm sure there are still some that exist over there, and they may have a lot of local debt, and this inflation could pretty much eliminate the that debt that they have against these national banks in Venezuela. What do you think? That's the case with this hyperinflation. I think the more important thing if you were a foreign company in Venezuela is just um, staying out of the government, exploiting you and, and, and taking all the stuff you have, because that's really what they've done. There's been several companies uh, leaving where the, the government basically said you're exploiting us somehow and, and basically shut them down. I really don't know. I don't have the numbers how much how much foreign investment is actually in Venezuela today. Um, and I would doubt that they would have issued debt in Venezuelan local currency. Um, I don't think that they would have gotten away with that or, you know, been able to issue many bonds on that premise. Yeah. One of the, the blurb on Amazon about your book, Lotta, was that... Uh-huh. You you know you you do have these successes of special economic zones, but there have been failures, and you did yeah. touch on maybe one or two one of them there earlier on. But is this something you kind of delve into in your book? Absolutely, some of these yeah. Failures? yeah. Just to not have that biased approach, but kind of open it up so that you know that because people can learn from failures, and that's the most important thing. That if you don't show them, you'll never know, and you could be exposed to them again. Yes, and you can kind of see failures in in two ways. One is again, I, I see success as benefiting the, the economy as a whole and failure, therefore, to doing the opposite. Failure does not mean a political failure. Failure can be the government launched its own because they were really good at rent-seeking and saw it as a tool for rent-seeking. And you have that. And what you have in many countries is these really small zones. They're called single factory zones often, which is basically just one company. It will be registered as a zone. It'll have hundreds and hundreds of zones. But it's really just companies that get tax benefit from the government under some premise, presumably. And if you try to distinguish that from a targeted tax benefit, so to speak, mm-hmm. there really isn't any difference, but one, some would call it some. And that's, I would say, just the reallocation of resources, the misallocation, it's, it's waste in the, in the sense of, of their rent-seeking. There are other ways, too, in the way the government uh, uses zones. One is... Um, if if you have a climate where there is an imperative to open up the economy, but then you have this government that is beholden to all these special interests that rely on tariffs to protect their markets, zones is actually a very the most effective way probably to delineate the economy, dividing it into two, saying you want to be protected, I'm going to protect you over here, the rest of the economy. If you're an exporter and you want lower tariffs and you and you're not selling to the domestic market. I'm going to allow you to have the special economic zone so that you can one claim credit for increase in exports, be very proactive and liberalization. It's a very targeted project, and you can say, "Hey, I'm so you know such a reformist," but it really is a way to avoid broader reforms because otherwise you might have to kind of cater to the interest, the export interests and, and to uh, have the broader reforms as well. So you have all these like kind of incentive problems, like they actually have the incentive to introduce zones, not because it's actually going to benefit the economy. And I would always be skeptical if it's a central government kind of project, you have to ask why if they want reform, don't they just pursue reform? If they're saying everybody's behind this, everybody wants to increase exports and so on. You have to ask, like, why are they actually doing it? Because in economic terms, especially economic zones, are a second best. That is, you're going to have a less of these 
misallocation of resources and all of those things um, if you just do broader kind of reform. Now, the other way in which you can be unsuccessful and, and they could be failure is the government is actually kind of trying to do it in the right way. They might not understand that they can do it more broadly, whatever the story can be. But you have all these kind of knowledge problems. They put up zones. If it's, if it's um, very kind of uh, centralized driven, it might be really, they might just not know what is are the good locations. They put up zones in bad locations. They have a vision about what production should be in their country, where what is going to pull the economy forward. And they invest in a hyper, super cyber park with um, connected to university, maybe, and all these computers and things like that. And and it turns out that the education level is just not there for the country to have these kind of zones. It would be much better with textile production or something like that. So just kind of not uh, investing in the right kind of thing. And that's why where the private development becomes important. It's important, one, because you have often a better feel by the by the private developers what actually can work. Um, and if they do fail, it's not a taxpayer question. It's the entrepreneur that took the risk, that wanted to take the risk, that also yes. ends up losing the money. Lasse, your work has then brought you to another area that you're actually working with called Refugee Cities. Yeah. And I, I just checked out the website and I think it's amazing what you're what you're working on here, refugeecities.org. And this is again using the your experience on special economic zones and then looking at the refugee camps that we see um, there there just seem to be everywhere, Latin America, North America, Europe, North Africa, that these people who are put forced into not forced into camps but find themselves in refugee camps they do not have the the dignity or the the life that they would have had if everything was all back to normal in their own a country that they've had happened to flee from so what was the whole idea regarding refugee cities and also bringing in the sustainable or the special economic zones that you you work on yeah, the idea that we had, that was we started working on this on back in two, 2014, I think it was maybe 13. It was very much how to implement special economic zones in 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 new and effective ways. The big misconception of refugee zones, uh, refugee um, camps, is often that they are temporary because that's what they are on paper. Uh, temporary solutions and uh, they last for a little while, and then people go back home or resettle. And alas, that is not the reality. These zones, these um, camps, can last for decades and generations. The best example would be the Dadaab camp in, in kind of complex of, of camps in Kenya, and um, where you have third generation uh, refugees. And uh, they are often in many countries. They're explicitly prohibited from working. They cannot pursue uh, commercial activity, which is just off the charts, ridiculous, you'd think. Often people have, you know, people are entrepreneurial, people have talents, they want to work. Of course, they want to have a better life. And as you say, like the dignity aspect of it, not just saying, hey, we're, we're just going to be taking care of you. I mean, often in uh, refugee camps, you have the UNHCR being involved and, and, and providing like the bare necessities. But uh, the idea is, is to think how uh, refugees can actually find, a, in the long run, both having a better life in the camp, but also in the long run, finding a way out of there. What if they can actually accumulate capital? There's a political economy problem of people in their host countries not wanting to accept them because they see them as poor, not, you know, they don't want them in there. We don't want to take care of you. Keep them in the, in the camps. Well, what if they can show that, hey, this factory that is set up just outside the camp, that can, by the way, also um, hire local people, people from the host uh, con- economy that is that is not uh, refugees. Um, what if what if then the refugees can show, hey, I, I work here, I accumulated this capital, I'll be fine resettling now in in your country. Too bad I can't go back home. The conflict is still going on. And that could be you know, the way to go. Um, that's very much the idea. I, I, uh, and I've been on the um, 
uh, integrating a lot with the act on the academic side here and like spreading the understanding and, and the interest of this. And I do have a paper coming out that okay. um, the um, refugee special economic zone concept. Okay. Um, so hoping more and more people are going to kind of pick up the idea and, and see where, where it goes. And, oh, sorry. Yeah. Again, this is totally new for me because yeah. whatever was special economic zones, but I can only speak for myself, but I could never make a connection like the way you had done, say, we spoke about blockchain, but also now with refugee camps. And these camps are not just small camps. They are vast in terms of the, I'm sure, the land, the sizes, the square area, um, where a lot of people, talented people, could offer uh, human capital resources and drive the economy within that area and uh, contribute to the overall economy uh, of the host country. But linking the special economic zones with the refugee camps is an extremely clever idea to give them that particular status to allow them to integrate into the economy as not only refugees but um, immigrants more so that are able to uh, offer their expertise or entrepreneurialism that they have and they do have they do they would have to drive somebody who is i'm sure at a, a low level in terms of their dignity and their status i suppose you could call it they want to prove themselves and they would work extremely hard um, to to do that and this is something that a host country should entertain not necessarily entertain but should encourage and provide that, uh, provide the outlet to do so through these zones. Yeah, have, have, have you spoken to the UN or anything about this, or you know, have the UN done anything, any work on trying to adopt and apply these this type of special economic zones zone status to refugee camps? Yeah, I, you know, there there are progress being made that I can't talk about, and I'm not the the person who actually is doing a lot of that kind of integration uh, and 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 meeting and doing all the meetings and things like that. But there's certainly interest out there. There's certainly governments that have flagged our interest in being kind of part of part of it. And um, I would say that anyone who works on special economic zones, you have to be a kind of a, uh, a you cannot you cannot seek the the best solution. It's the second best kind of solution that we're looking at because yeah. some one criticism is, for example, well, wouldn't it be better if <laughs> wouldn't yes. it be better if they can just resettle in the economy? Why are you encouraging that? you know, some that they can't go back and things like that. And it's 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 like it you have to like think marginal benefits. The there's a reality out there that says there there that there are that it's just not possible for them to uh either settle in their host country or go back home. And often like the the entering the new country has to do with a political economy problem. There's political resistance to it. And as long as you have that, that's just a fact on the ground. And it's great for people who work on migration issues and advocating for the benefit of letting more people in. I'm, I'm definitely for that. I, and I want to see more of that. And then I can kind of work on my end in the meantime, kind of finding the second best kind of solution. So with this forthcoming paper you have on it, um, what do you, what was your objective of the paper and what findings did you? come across or what insights did you gather from it yeah it's, it's, uh, it? uh, yeah absolutely uh, um, it's been published in the GEPP uh, will be the, with the journal it's, it's very much a, a theoretical a theoretical paper and with all the arguments and all the logic laying out why these zones connected to refugee camps make sense yeah. uh, what the benefit should be and then uh, looking formally to kind of simple math, kind of looking at, well, it can benefit everyone. Yes, because yeah. the, the, a lot of the criticisms will be nobody will want to go to the zone or to invest. Like, how are you going to attract investors? Or are you exploiting the people? Or will the government actually allow for this? And the answer is maybe not. Maybe there will be issues. Maybe there will be problems. Maybe in all places... It's certainly the case that in, uh, there will be countries where you cannot find a location that is okay. good enough for investors to come at the same time that the government can provide benefits that, does, that is on net a positive for the government, as okay. opposed to just taking care of maintaining the refugees and giving them food. So there will be these trade-offs, but the pursuit is finding location that actually works, um, finding the conditions that are actually right, 
And if you can find one and you can find, if you can help thousand people get a better life out of, you know, the million uh, refugees out there, that's, mm. that would be pretty cool. You know? Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. So oh. it's a matter of having these experiments where you just say, we may fail and let's try it and let's try to do our best and see how far we can go. Exactly. Yeah. And the thing is, to could these these could work from other in other camps. You know, not necessarily. It might fail in one particular camp, but it might work out in another. But when you were writing that paper, did you draw from any other disciplines and not just economics? Like, for example, um, I know in your book you you refer to dignity and kind of like self respect as well. So that has kind of psychological connotations. And would you have looked into or even touched on those types of that type of work like in for example the the concentration camp that you mentioned there about kenya you're talking about three generations yes. you know that that's that's almost now becoming quite accepting of those people who are resident at these camps and i don't know if there's frustration there and people want to mutiny and get out of there or they you know they're enclosed so that has a, more than a, a lot of economic thinking going on there and kind of branching out into other types of disciplines, perhaps. Yeah, I would say any academic paper, at least in my world, is is an evolution. It's not a never final product. But the state at which it is published uh, is where I have cut out a lot of that because we actually, uh, I, I did... Um, I did rely much more for at first on on the kind of literature on on um, refugees generally and thinking about going through like thinking about the conditions for refugees and and, and things like that and um, I'm publishing in an economic journal so therefore it it's more focused on the economics. Yes, I understand. You always want to kind of you know you want to cut it down. You don't want yes. to bore your readers, so uh, it's assuming here and this could also be long discussion right like assuming that if you have a choice you're not compelled and if you anything and your current situation does not deteriorate so it can only be a period of improvement so to speak then you're per definition better off you can go there to work if you want if you want to stay in the camp and not go there to work that's fine everybody will not be accepted probably to work there and not be interesting but so that's that's from the, from the refugees standpoint. That's kind of where I take it there. Yeah, if there was a health um, journal, they probably wanted you to discuss about sanitation and disease and cleanliness, and they wouldn't want the economics. So you'd have to kind of draw the yeah, lines. And be, help, yeah. yeah, so you have to focus in on those particular areas. Um, Lotta, I'd love to know a few more questions, or I'd love to ask you a few more questions if that's okay with you. Sure. Um. Do you have any book recommendation that you'd like to offer or the reader and what kind of interests you or, you know, could be academic, could be fiction or nonfiction that's somewhat related to your work? Um, I would think of two books that I really, mm -hmm. really like, and I won't remember the, the authors uh, right now. Origin of Wealth tremendous book going through just a lot of aspects of economics a uh, little bit of finance in there. Lately read End of Theory. End of Theory, okay. Yeah, which is another, um, uh, his name will, will not pop up in my head right now, uh, but it's about the, um, it's very much about like how economics can be improved by it, with agent-based models, things like that, and a different way of thinking, thinking more in evolutionary terms when it comes to economics. So those will be two. I am right now applying through um, Theory of Moral Sentiments by okay. Adam Smith, which is, you know, anybody will recommend that, I presume. Yeah, so. the, that's <laughs> number one, I think, on the list <laughs> in the podcast. <laughs> I actually, uh, being here in Chicago, I recently read uh, Upton Sinclair's The Jungle. No, I never and, heard of it now. Yeah, it's about the, the turn of the century, like 1900, uh, at the, about the stockyards and the life in the stockyards in, in Chicago. And I think Chicago is such an interesting city with the, with the history uh, of that. And of course, me being a Swede, I, I kind of sympathize with, with stories about migrants and, and how their life turned out back then versus you know, 
what kind of conveniences we have now when we end yeah. up in the U.S. That's true. What about music? What do you listen to? I know it's non-economics, but... You know, uh, the fact that I don't know that will tell you that I won't have a good answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to all kinds of stuff. I, I, I try to just dig up more things, but then I end up listening to the old, same old songs over and over again. So I constantly ask my friends, like, hey, tell me what to listen to. I, I, re I recently uh, discovered First Aid Kit, which is a Swedish band. That's the T-shirt. Oh, it is? Yeah, oh, I, it's their it's, album Runes. It's backwards because okay. it's. Uh, I didn't even yeah. know that that was the name of the album. Yeah. Uh, and that was because, like, American friend of mine, a good friend, yeah. who said, "Oh, you should listen to these. Have you never?" They're I can't great, aren't they? Yeah, they're good. Yeah, like they're great. <laughs> funny that you. That's funny you say it because I I didn't wear this on purpose. No, <laughs> no you know, I had no idea. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually going to see them in October. I saw them. It, um, I mean, I, ha I have these kind of things like from my childhood. Like, I'm I'm a big Billy Joel person. Like, I just keep listening to the old Billy Joel songs. I can't get enough of it. Billy Joel, is it? Yeah. Billy Joel, yeah. Oh, yeah. oh it just you like, just broke up there. Uh... Yeah, Billy Joel <laughs> and other like old stuff that I keep going back to. Yeah. Um, if you could step into the DeLorean and time travel, you're just. I haven't asked this question in a while. <laughs> You're you're dreading this question, are you? Um, it, it, it's a question that I knew would come, but I did not think about uh, it. So, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, one person that I just like thinking about, kind of what have actually been important people in history, and I would actually like to meet Genghis Khan. Okay, because, because <laughs> it's just because of your experience in Russia. Uh, no, Does it's he, actually, is he spoken of negatively there? I actually, uh, you know, uh, when I was when I was in Kosovo, we had like for two weeks we had a Mongolian, uh, uh, like thirty or so Mongolians staying in our camp, and they were like machines, like they could like do anything, and we were like playing these like we were in, in indoor like bandy kind of thing. Oh, what do you call it? Like uh, you have a ball and and you like. You, it's like hockey, but indoors with a plastic light ball. And they had never seen anything like this. And we were like, this, we're going to beat them at. And they were like bad for like two minutes. And then they got it. And then, yeah. you just, and when you took out, you know, went, went and had a beer with them afterwards, they were just so into uh, Genghis Khan. And like, uh, yeah. they just, they just really like, it was such a core part of, 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 of <laughs> that, that history. And I, um, and I realized that that was a person that really redrew kind of the map of the world at the time. You, the concept of Eurasia did not really exist before that. And uh, I just kind of want to know if he was a nice dude or not. He probably was really unpleasant, right? So I kind of, but I'm, I'm curious to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you have your metal or your, your defenses ready to go just in case he comes swinging at you with the, on the horseback. I assume that the time travel allows you to step in the machine as soon as you're in, in, in physical danger. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Given that you've written a book and you've written a number of papers, we could quickly end on this. I don't mind if you don't want to answer it, but have you got any uh, writing tips or what, what helps you get things done as an academic and apply yourself? I think that... Um, the way that when, when you do a PhD and you write several papers and you have to really think hard of every piece of your argument was really helpful in me to putting it together in a book. And I think something similar could be said, um, as many people say, and I would agree, most books are just articles that you, you know, kind of inflate with a lot of words and they really don't need to be books. And at least from my perspective, I would I want to write a book that has a lot of substance in every chapter and uh, is, is is as condensed with the insights as you can possibly be. And I think that starting out with like I have I have a disagreement with this concept. I disagree with what people think about it. Whatever you know, it depends. You know, whatever subject matter you're in, start really digging into it. Like taking something small and thinking about why my view is different from others and then writing down the arguments and see if you can, if you can write it down, you know, in two pages, 
then you can probably write more about it. Like if, if you can put it down, it's a solid argument, just keep at it. And, um, and then, you know, and then take it one step at a time. Like, okay, so I have this argument down. Then the next one, like in academia, it will be the next paper that is related to that, that came out of ideas that I got when writing that to be able to keep them separate. Like, you know, that it's all in a whole, but if you try to do everything at once, it doesn't work. And to keep them separate enough, but so that they still, you know, connect together. And then, and then when you're actually writing a book, you're going to have to rewrite everything again and rethink everything again. And that's when it gets better again. But, you know, it's a lot of work. If I, if I know how much work it's going to be, I don't know if I would write <laughs> a book, I'm happy that I didn't know how much time I would actually end up spending on it. But that's my, that's, you know, my general idea. I, I, I heard a lot of good writing tips that I won't, you know, repeat from others on your, on your podcast. So. Nice. Yeah. So um, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Lotta. Where could people find you? I know you have your website, LottaMoberg.com. Yes. Yes. And uh, there's a, quite a few links there. Even there's uh, links to some of your articles and also t- a link to Refugee Cities. And it's a, it's a great resource for anybody who's interested in special economic zones and how you know, the, the work that you do on refu- refugee cities and how something like that could be integrated into a, a, an economic zone. And for anybody who's doing research or is generally interested in reading up on this, uh, you're definitely the, the go-to person. And I will put up the all the links and books and resources mentioned in this episode over at economicrockstar.com forward slash Lotta Moberg. And thanks again. Thanks once again for coming on the show and joining me and anticipating some of those questions that you you knew about having listened to previous episodes before. <laughs> yeah, it's a great pleasure. I'm a big fan of your podcast, and so it's, it's wonderful to be a part of it. Yeah, Thank you so thanks. Much. Thanks very much. Really appreciate a lot of... Economic Rockstar is a free podcast that does not exclude anyone from listening as long as they have a device to listen, download or stream. I have many listeners from all parts of the world and I truly am pleased to know that the Economic Rockstar podcast unites all of you through the common theme of economics. I strive to commit to releasing an episode each week and aim to develop Economic Rockstar into much more than just a podcast. Patreon is a platform that gives you, the listener of the Economic Rockstar podcast, the opportunity to express your appreciation of the show by committing a financial reward for as little as $1 a month. Patreon allows me, the creator of the Economic Rockstar podcast, to be rewarded and paid by you so I can continue with the running costs of the show and to reinvest and expand the podcast into other platforms or mediums in the future. To find out more on how you can help the Economic Rockstar podcast and have your name added to the supporters list on my website, please check out my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash economic rockstar or visit the supporters page on the Economic Rockstar website. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not leave some feedback or comments on the show notes page on economicrockstar.com where you can also sign up and be a member of the Economic Rockstar community. If you're listening to this episode on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, I would love to have some feedback and for you to leave an honest rating and review, as this will help with the rankings of the show so that more people can find it. If you're listening on the website economicrockstar.com, make sure you check out the back catalogue of all previous episodes and interviews with some amazing professors and authors at economicrockstar.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening and I really appreciate your loyal support. I know how much you love audio, so why not get a free audiobook with Economic Rockstar today? I've teamed up with audiobooks.com to bring you this amazing offer. Visit audiobooks.com forward slash rockstar to download your free audiobook now.